Hey, my name is Parker Manuel, pastor of Pinewood Church in Boulder, Colorado, where our mission is to meet people where they are and point them to Jesus. Hope you enjoy today's podcast. Tonight, we're continuing through uh, a series that we've been working through, through the book of Acts. Acts is a book in the Bible, a really critical book in the Bible. Uh, in the New Testament, we have four books called the Gospels, which recounts the story of Jesus' life here on this earth, and it carries us through all the way into the, his death and his final words, but what's so exciting, and then fast forward, the next book after Acts, we have Romans, which is an incredible uh, foundational doctrinal book uh, about how the gospel is spread everywhere and some core principles for life, but if we didn't have Acts, we would be really confused from the end of the Gospels until the beginning of Romans. We'd be like, wait, hold on. What about the ascension of Jesus? What about the Holy Spirit coming down? What about the apostles and these missionary journeys? And how did the gospel get to the ends of the earth? Well, that's why we have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is actually outlined in one single verse. It's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And how fascinating for some of you in the room who love that stuff, that is actually how the book of Acts is outlined. If you read through the books of Acts, that's the way. You, they're, they're in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then, then they go to the ends of the earth. I love the book of Acts, written by Dr. Luke. It's meticulous in his detail. Got a question for you tonight. Are you like me? And is it easy for you to prioritize the urgent over the important? Does anybody else do that? Do you prioritize the urgent over the important? Yeah. I think we all do that. Uh, I feel like I'm especially, uh, especially bad at that. So like you wake up in the morning and you realize that you have 100 emails that you have to get to or 100 text messages. And it becomes urgent. And so and the important thing is to have a a nice, well-rounded breakfast and to get a little bit of rest in the morning. But no, like the urgent takes over from like the second you wake up and immediately you're stressed out because we prioritize the urgent over the important. And that's in every area of our life. It's probably in our calendars. So our week to week, we prioritize whatever it is, that thing that is very urgent over what's important, maybe with this really annoying person in your life who's driving you crazy, and you stress out about this person that's frustrating you a little bit, well, it's, it's urgent. This person is the loudest. They're driving me crazy. Well, they may not be important. Now, I'm not saying that about any of you. I love all of you guys, you know. I would never say that about any of you. But we do that in our life, not just with people, but we do that in circumstances as well. Something urgent pops up, and boom, all of our attention goes to this thing, even if that thing is not important. For example, a personal core value of mine, something that I hold dearly to my heart, is cleanliness. I am aggressive about this value. I love cleanliness. Any clean people in the house tonight? It could be any area of your life. Maybe you shower every day. I, I'm, thank you. Okay. We all are grateful for that. <laughs> hey, look, you can't wash your hair every time. It's natural oils, you know. <laughs> but I obsess, I'm aggressive with this desire towards cleanliness. I like a clean house. I like a clean car. 
I like my screen to be clean. Some may say obsessive compulsive. I say it's just, I just enjoy cleanliness, you know. I'm in denial still. Pray for me. <laughs> but I have this desire, and oftentimes this desire and this urgency for cleanliness overshadows what's important. For example, my uh, son, Ryan, has been asking me every single day this week if I could give him a bass guitar lesson. I play bass, and I enjoy playing the bass, and, and I have an extra bass in my basement, and, and every day he's been coming to me, hey, I set the bass up today. Hey, can you teach me the bass today? And you know what's, what's happening? I've been home alone. My wife has been out of town all week, and so, so I've just been obsessing over the details well, all right, I'll, I'll do the bass. Let me, let me just tidy up the house real quick, and we'll get to that. And then, and then, that, and then an hour later, as I'm cleaning up the house, I'm like, hey, Dad, can you, can you come give me a lesson right now? And I'm like, hey, let me, let me just get dinner going. Or, hey, let me, let me do this. Or, uh, just this little crazy, urgent things, like a bunch of little things. If I'm being honest, things that don't really matter all that much. And then the end of the day comes, and I'm like, hey, bro, like, I'm really sorry. I didn't, we didn't get to the bass lesson today, but, um, but tomorrow, man, tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes, and then the next day comes, and the next day comes. And would you believe that I have yet to give him a bass lesson all week? You're judging me. I can feel it. It's thick. Wow. He, he's a horrible dad. <laughs> I struggle. It's just easy to prioritize the urgent the things that don't really matter, over the important. And unfortunately, if we're being honest, we all do this in areas of our life. All right. I don't think it, you, that we necessarily do this because we have this desire to be reactive. Nobody wakes up in the morning and is like, today's the day, I'm gonna be reactive. No. <laughs> if you do, let's get you some help. Like, there's... We're going to talk about that. No, we want to be proactive with our life, intentional in every area of our life. I don't think that we're doing this intentionally, but I think so often we don't take the time and the space in our life to sit back, take a deep breath, and to prioritize our values, prioritize our calendar, prioritize our resources. How do you know what you value? Well, what do you spend your time doing? What do you know is at the top of your priority list? Well, what are you resourcing? These are very simple, practical ways that we can discover what we're actually living for. I want you to think about something, and I don't mean for this to be depressing. This is just a simple question. Uh, I truly mean for this to be inspiring, and I hope that you write this down, and we're going to come back to this at several different points throughout the conversation, but I think it's an important question, no matter where you are in life. I think it's an important question that we all ask. And it is this, if it's worthy, if it's not worthy to die for, is it worthy to live for? If it's not worthy to die for, is it worthy to live for? And tonight, we're just going to be talking about the theme of, you know, what should we be living for? How do we find purpose in our life? And at the end of the day, truly, at the end of the day, what would we die for? Think about that. What, what would you lay down your life for on this earth? 
There's a passage of scripture in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 that speak directly to this idea. What's worthy of laying down our life? Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Uh, we're actually going to cover two chapters tonight. But we're going to do it really fast. Is that okay? All right. Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Before we dive into this text, let's pray together for just, just a second. Come before God. and God, we just... Uh, we come before you. We say we're grateful to be here. We enter your house with, with thanksgiving, your courts with praise. God, we say today is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and we will be glad in it. God, we're so grateful to be here. The posture of our heart is humility and gratitude. It's a privilege. So, Spirit, we know that you're here. Your word says we're two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. So, God, thank you for being here. Father, we also know that wherever your spirit is present, life change happens. So uh, we thank you for the life change. God, we pray that as we examine your word tonight, that we would be introspective, that we would be fully aware of our own life, our own standard of living, Father, that we would not be thinking about the person to our left or our right or our friends or our family. But Father, I pray that we would be truly honest with ourselves and consider how this text might change and transform my life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people set. Strong. So we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. Let's examine the first seven verses. And we're going to just systematically work through this text quickly. Here we go. Acts 6, verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, okay, pause. The disciples, the twelve disciples that followed Jesus, what's happening is there's some people, some widows uh, that aren't getting food distributed to them. Okay, let's come back. And they said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So the word of God spread. Everybody say, the word of God spread. Word of the Lord. Okay, good. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in the number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. There's not a whole lot we know about Stephen from the Bible other than these two chapters. So what we know of Stephen, we're actually discovering right now. And what we know of him is that he was somebody with a good reputation, and he was full of the Spirit. We also know that he was chosen to have a very special task, and that was to be the manager of the lunchroom. Now, when we think of the grander scale of anything that I could have been honored and tasked with, from many of us here, we would say, yeah, I don't know that I want to be the one distributing food. Uh, I think for many people, they would say, like, I don't know that I want to be on the field. I'm more, I want to be on the stage. Like, if I'm, if I'm like, behind, like, the, the lunch table, like, no one's going to see, like, how good looking I am. 
<laughs> Preach, brother. You know, I mean, we desire the position that for whatever reason feels more upfront and more important or whatever you want to say, but that wasn't exactly Stephen's story. And I think an important thing to consider here is, is that he was assigned this task, and this is one of the reasons why I want to call this out in verse 7, and he fulfilled it really well, so much so that it says, then the word of God spread. Are we willing to be faithful no matter what the position, no matter what the title, no matter what God calls us to? Are we willing to be faithful to say like, hey, like, yeah, lunchroom, bring it in. I'm going to win everybody in that lunchroom to Jesus. That gets even better. We like to say at Pinewood, if, if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say, we don't just say that at Pinewood. I think that is true in every area of your life. If you're too good and if you're above serving the people around you and the people that you love, uh, I want to go ahead and tell you right now, you, you, you're not going to make it very far as a leader. How many of you love serving with bosses that are all about themselves? They're the worst. But what about a boss that's always looking out for your needs, always praying for you, always elevating you, always speaking into your potential? I want that boss. If serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. A title doesn't elevate your status. Oftentimes, in all spheres of life, even in business as well, we think, if I just get that title, I got the influence. If I just get that title, I can boss people around. I want to tell you right now, that's not the mentality that we have here at Pinewood Church. We don't believe a title actually gives you influence. We believe that the greatest title that you could have is a servant. The scripture says that the greatest of you will be the least of these. Even Jesus himself said he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of Jesus I wanna, I wanna follow that kind of person who's laying down his life for the people around him. Yeah, I'll follow that. I'll follow that, God. He was a faithful servant over food distribution. Number two is controlled by the Spirit. Look in verse eight. It says, now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. He's like, here's your mac and cheese. Here's your eyesight back. Okay, like this is like, he's. <laughs> Whoa, wow, never, I never saw that coming. He's not only fulfilling his duties with a good reputation, he is literally healing people. Radical. I love, let's keep reading. Opposition arose, however, and some of the members of the Freeman Synagogue, composed of Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from the Sicilia and Asia, places together, they, they began to argue with Stephen and they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Man, I love Stephen. 
Mm. I love Stephen's heart. I love his passion. I love his conviction. If you notice something in these first 10 verses, there's an emphasis on the word full of. He was full of. That word in the Bible, it means to be controlled by. So he, he was controlled by the Spirit. Uh, we see in the text that he was controlled by three things. He was full of and controlled by three things. The Holy Spirit, we see that in Acts 3 and 6, 3 and 10. He was full of faith, Acts 6, 5, and full of power, Acts 6, 8. Holy Spirit, faith, and power. How many of you want that to be said of your life? Uh, I'm just, man, I, man, I love, you know, my friend. He's just, I don't know much about him. He's just, he's full of the spirit, faith, and power. Yes. I want that on my, my tombstone, okay? Don't know much about him. Full of faith, Holy Spirit, and of power. I want you to consider for just a second, what would people say you're full of? I'll let your mind go there for a second. You tell me. You're like, wait, am I, was this about myself or are we looking at our friends? No, 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 don't look to the left, don't look to the right. We're talking about you. I'm talking. What would people say you're full of? Full of, you know, I mean, and, and some of you, I mean, it's probably good things, maybe. I think it's good things because I love you, you know? I would say you're full of a lot of really great things. But how tragic would it be if at the end of our life, when people spoke of us in history past, they would say, yeah, I didn't really know much about her, but she was, she was full of herself. He was full of himself. Let that not be said of any of our lives that we leave a legacy where people say we're full of ourselves. Something that I love about Stephen is that he had deep convictions. And something that I want to talk about in, this, in verse number 10, I love this. It says, they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. They were unable to stand up against him. But he doesn't strike me as this overpowering guy. But he had this supernatural power, this supernatural wisdom about him, this supernatural passion almost. And, and, and I like to call that conviction and say that deep conviction is very convincing. Deep conviction is very convincing. Uh, have you ever met somebody not passionate about anything? <laughs> Do you want to be their friends? <laughs> Uh, not believing anything that you say. I would rather somebody be passionate about something, even if it's the wrong thing, than nothing. Just show me some fire in your bones that you believe in something, that you're living for something. Show me that you have an, a single conviction, and maybe we can go there together. I think a lot of people live by two different standards. Uh, one standard is on your left, and that is the standard, is a standard lifestyle. And then I think there's other people that live by conviction. And, and, and all of us, to some degree, probably have a measure of both. What do I, what's the difference of a standard in my life and a conviction in my life? Well, a standard is something that you're living for, 
You're trying your best. A conviction is something that you would die for. I would say we have many standards, very few convictions. And so what are the tools? What are the tools that we need to discover what should be a conviction in my life? How can I determine what's a conviction? Because I honestly, you know, maybe you're here and you're like, I can't think of anything I would die for. I kind of just want to live forever. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, you know, I'm saying I kind of want to live long too. It's the goal. But, but surely there's something, something burning in your soul that you say, you know what? I would die for that. Deep convictions are very convincing. That's why they couldn't stand up against him. They're supernatural in nature. Then in verse 11 and 15, this is to wrap up this chapter, we see that he was falsely accused. It says that they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses. Secretly persuaded this. And God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, they seized him, and they took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like an angel. So when I, when I read this, and, and when you read this too, I don't, know, I don't know what kind of friend you are to your friends, but when I read this, like, I immediately like, make Stephen a friend. Like, I'm like, man, I really love this guy. And then I hear about what the Sanhedrin is doing here, secret, secretly going around persuading people, accusing him as, of blasphemy and, and bearing false witness against him. I'm like, oh, man, if I was there, those Sanhedrin would be, I'd be putting up a fight. Like, no, I'm going to be bulldogging that Sanhedrin. You aren't going to, Stephen, what does Stephen do wrong? The dude's out at the rescue mission serving food to the poor and the homeless and the widows with a good reputation, full of the spirit, wisdom, and power and faith. And you're going to come at my boy Stephen? You're going to have to go through me to get to Stephen. I love Stephen. I get so angry at these religious people. All this, all this, because they had this unsatiable desire for control, and they had pride, they had deceit in their heart, all to maintain power. That's, that to me is pretty dis disgusting. This was not religious people truly seeking spiritual truth and wisdom and guidance from God. No, 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 no. They wanted power. They wanted control. So much so that even with what they are doing here, we'll find out later as we read on, they end up stoning Stephen. But this was even illegal by Roman law. They're breaking the law. They're lying. They're deceiving. They're bearing false witness. That's not religious. That's not seeking truth. It was all about them and all about the flesh. 
But we see in contrast, Stephen was full of the Spirit. We see that his face was like the face of an angel. Man, what did that look like? I wish I could have seen that. You know, we can't really imagine that. And we're just, whoa, what was that like? But from the Sanhedrin standpoint, these religious people who, oh, they knew, they knew about the, the law. Oh, they knew the Torah for sure. So surely they knew in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses came down that his face shined like the radiant sun after they're accusing him of bearing false witness towards and blaspheming Moses and God. I find that amazing. I, I see, it's like God is saying, like, he's not against Moses. He's like Moses. He's my faithful servant. Don't come at my point, Moses. In chapter 7, I'm, not, I'm actually going to just kind of highlight real quick the first 53 verses of chapter 7. Just... It actually is just an unbelievable sermon. I highly recommend that at some point you go back, you read it, you digest it, because all of the accusations that they're trying to condemn him for and accuse him of, he actually, in this sermon, he addresses every single one. I mean, like really, really, really well, like articulates really better than they could their own scripture. But in verse 1 and 2, I am going to read this. It says this. Uh, the high priest said, he said, are these things true? Asking that of Stephen. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, he replied, listen. And that was the beginning of his sermon for the next 53 verses. The high priest was probably a man named Caiaphas. If you remember, in John chapter 18, Caiaphas was the one that Jesus was brought to and put on trial. And Caius, Caiaphas was actually the one that accused and actually ended up condemning Jesus. So you can imagine, put yourself in Stephen's position. Uh, Stephen, is, he already knows he's getting falsely accused. The people are angry and, and coming at him and dragging him before the Sanhedrin. And then he sees Caiaphas, the high priest, saying, is this true? With pretty much everyone else shouting that it is you can imagine that Stephen is probably thinking, I know where this is going. Because, I mean, this story is starting to sound a little familiar, doesn't it? Someone of good reputation who, who loved and served everyone is now being put on trial, being falsely accused. Sounds a lot like Jesus. And here he is right before Caiaphas. And you can imagine he's thinking, I know where this is going. But I love Stephen. Stephen is a, a man of courage, a man of bold faith. I love that Stephen, in this instance, when many of us probably would have been like, you know, some of it's true, some of it's not, who really knows? I, I ate some mushrooms earlier. Who knows what I said, you know? Let's be honest. Like, if, if we're faced knowing that we're, we could we're about to die, 
I think for many of us, our story would change. Why? Because we live on convictions, not on, or live on standards, not convictions. But I love that Stephen doesn't shrink back in fear, but he stands firm in faith. And he says, you're not going to move me. I'm going to preach a message as bold as I ever have right now. Not only, I'm not, I'm not even going to go on the defense. You're going to come at me, and I'm not even going to go on the defense. I'm going to go on the offense. And I'm going to take everything that you're accusing me of, and I'm going to put that on you. Oh, God gave you the law. You didn't even obey the law. Oh, you asked for God to send you prophets. You rejected and resisted every prophet that God had ever sent you. You asked for a Savior. He gave you a Savior, and you killed him. He's going to take their own law. He's going to put it right back on them. Why? Because he's filled with the Spirit. He's filled with faith. He's filled with power, and he's not going to shrink back in fear. He's going to stand firm in faith. Consider this. How do you respond when opposition comes your way? When humiliation comes your way, or persecution, or whatever it is, it could be anything. Any, it could look like anything, but how do you respond when opposition comes your way? Do you shrink back in fear or stand firm in faith? One of the things that I love about this text is that Stephen, this is just a, an overarching principle, in order to preach this message, Stephen had to know the word. I want to encourage many of you here today, you will never outgrow your knowledge of the word. You're like, but like, you know, I'm seeking understanding. Well, if you're seeking understanding apart from the word, you're not going to get very far because this is God's voice. You want to have a communication with God, literally talk to God. You get in his word. Uh, there's, I believe that there's nothing in the world, nothing in life that is more important than a deep and intimate personal relationship with a holy God. There's a lot of things that we could do in this life. And I think that, that many of these things could be great things. But the, if, we're, if we're talking priorities and importance, I think the most important thing we could possibly do is to want to know the person that created us uh, to have a relationship with a person that has an awesome plan for our life. I think, I think we'd want to be intimate with a person that uh, the scripture says can provide peace that provides, that goes beyond all understanding and that he'll guard our hearts and minds and that he has a path for us that we can follow and, and he can comfort our soul when we're feeling down. And I mean, man, I want to know that God that gives us hope for eternity with the Father. Yeah, I want to know that God Stephen was not only full of the Spirit, he had a deep understanding of the Word. I talked to a lot of people. I talked to a lot of people say that I'm not growing in my faith or I'm not really growing spiritually. And, or they say that, you know, I feel like I was growing, but now I'm kind of plateauing. I'm kind of stagnant. And this is not, this is not me, like, accusing you. This is just a question, but... How often are you spending time in the Word? Or is everything else priority? How often are you studying the Word? Meditating on the Word? 
memorizing the word, listening to the word. Scripture says that God's word is God breathed. It's literally his breath on our face. It's profitable for teaching, training, correcting, and rebuking in righteousness. Like to be righteous, to be like God, we have to know his word and read his word, study his word. Stephen knew his word. We're going to see in just a second in this next part of the text that Stephen is actually going to be killed for his faith. He's going to be martyred is what we call that. But what's important for us to see before we go there is that Stephen was a humble servant and a faithful messenger of the gospel before he was a forgiving martyr. He was a humble servant and he was a faithful messenger before he was a forgiving martyr. Why is that important? I think it's important because in our relationships around us, I think we have a lot of people and You probably know where I'm going here. We have a lot of our people that are like, ride or die, that's my homie. Hey, I'm with you, I'm with you on lock. Thick or thin, we're going through it together. And then thin comes around, and you're like, hey, bro, where'd you go? (laughs) Hey, you were like texting them and they respond, and you're like, hey, I knew it was bad, but like, you don't have to ghost me like that. I'm with you in the good times and the bad. And then there's good times, good times, good times, good times, good times. And then you hit bottom and you're going through stuff. And you're like, man, where'd they, where'd they go? I thought you said you were with me. Ride or die, man. I think we do that to God. God, I got you. But but I think we're missing a pattern. We're, we're like, I'll die for you, but I won't be a humble servant and live for you. I'll die for you. I got you, but I'm not going to be a faithful messenger and be a bold proclaimer of the good news of the gospel with the people that I know and love. But I got you. If, you, if, I, if there's ever a gun in my head, don't worry. I'm going to say, like, we're good. Isn't that off? Doesn't it seem a little off? No, 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 like, there's a pattern to this thing. There's a process to this thing. I believe that God's calling us to first to respond in obedience to the small things before we respond in confidence to the big things. He just wants our obedience in the small things. Uh, number five, and this is the last part, and last part of chapter seven, verses 54 through 60, it says this, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They gnashed their teeth at him, Stephen, here it is again, full of faith, controlled by the, full of the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. And here we have the first Christian martyr. 
The first Christian that we know of in scripture that laid his life down for the cause and the mission of Christ. Faithful to the very last breath. I want you to consider something tonight. Where do you turn when opposition hits you? I love what, I love what Stephen does. Stephen looks up. Where do you look? When hard times come your way, where do you look? Do you look back? I don't know. I was strong before. Like, I mean, I'll be strong again, right? Like, I got it. Do you look around? Like, hey, like, are you going to help me through this thing? Because otherwise, like, I don't know that I'm going to make it. Uh, Do you look in? If I just muster up enough strength inside, surely I'm going to be okay. Unfortunately, I mean, I'm just being honest. That's what I normally do. I normally look in. And I'm like, hey, I'm just gonna look, I'm just gonna work, work hard enough. I'm obviously in this position because I'm not disciplined enough. I'm just gonna discipline my life more. This is what I do. And what I've found over and over again is that like this is still not, still not enough. Like it's still not the answer. But Stephen looks up. It's almost like he knows like everything that I need is up there. The strength to get me through, the courage, the faith, everything I need is up there. And what's interesting, I love this. Are you ready for this? Stephen, when he looks up, Jesus stands up. The heavens open and Jesus, seated, stands up. I see the Son of Man, he says it twice, standing at the right hand of the Father. You know that this is the only instance in all of Scripture where Jesus is standing? Every other story We see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Well, it speaks of it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 12. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. The sacrifices just, they aren't sufficient to take away sins. I love this. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. High priests had to stand up and offer sacrifices for their sin, but we know that never truly sufficed. But we know Jesus, the ultimate spotless lamb, we sang it tonight, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We know that Jesus when he died and when he was buried and when he rose again, fulfilled the ultimate sacrifice for sin for everyone and forevermore. So that forevermore, Jesus can sit down at the right hand of the Father and enough to say, it is finished. It's done. The sin debt is paid. But I love, love, love that we see that Jesus, he stands up. Uh, There's a lot of commentary and a lot of different thought as to why he stood up. But the the first possibility as to why he stood up was because in the Sanhedrin in that day, when somebody was to give an account for something, a witness for something, they would stand up in the Sanhedrin and they would give an account. Well, here we have Stephen being stoned on his knees, everyone else bearing false witness to him. It's almost like Jesus, whenever nobody could stand for Stephen, Jesus stood for Stephen. Jesus will always stand for you. When, no one, when everyone else is against you, Jesus will stand for you. 
He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother and he's never seen defeat. Somebody gonna come at you, Jesus gonna stand up for you. You're never alone. That's, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that Stephen, being the first Christian mar- martyr, giving his life, his whole life for his faith, some believe that Jesus was giving him a standing ovation, recognizing, well done, my good, my faithful servant, come home. And the third possibility is that this was actually Stephen's coronation ceremony. But what happened in a coronation ceremony is that the person would come forward and they would fall on their knees and then they would take the crown and they would place the crown on their head. Scripture speaks of five crowns that we can actually receive in glory and in heaven. And one of those are the the crown of life. And it's almost like in in the final breath of Stephen, having been faithful to the end, he looks up to the heavens and he sees Jesus standing up as almost if to say, like, here's your crown, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home. And I'm sure, I'm sure Stephen, like the humble, faithful servant that he was, recognized that Jesus was worthy of his life. He was worthy of his death, and he's worthy of his rewards. As he receives the crown, I can imagine Stephen saying, no, Jesus, this is your crown. You're worthy. You're worthy. Come on. Stephen, there's two words for crown in the New Testament. Isn't it interesting? Stephanos is is the word that actually means for a crown that it can be earned. I love that the word Stephen means a crown. Revelations 2.10. You think this is coincidence? Come on, let's go. Revelations 2.10. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Woo! How many of you want that set of your life? I was faithful to the end. I want my father to say, well done, my good and faithful daughter. Well done, my good and faithful son. I want to be faithful to the end. Not all of us are going to be called and required to lay down our lives physically for the gospel, but in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we see that the scripture is calling us to be a living sacrifice. I think... Oftentimes, we think that if we just show up, it's our worship. But we actually see in scriptures that when we lay down our life, that's worship. Our sacrifice daily is actually our worship to God. That we may not be laying our lives down physically, but every single day we wake up in the morning and we lay our lives down at the foot of the cross spiritually. And we say, Jesus, you have my life. Lead and guide me however you want. Fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit that I may walk in step with your spirit. Fill me with your wisdom and your power. Fill me with your faith. Father, I lay my life down for your life. I follow you. I'm not just gonna look and and be a fan of you and enjoy you. I'm gonna follow the path that you've called me to. Your sacrifice is when you truly lay down your life in worship. What would you be willing to die for? I want you to truly consider this for just a second. Uh, This is just my list. You can have your own list. This is personal to you. This is personal to me. 
uh, I wrote down there was two things that I would die for. These are convictions of mine. And that's the people that I love. No one demonstrated this better than Jesus. He says, greater love has no one than this than he who would lay down his life for a friend. No one demonstrated that better than Jesus who laid down his life for you and I. So I would lay down my life for the people that I love. My family, you better believe. If there's somebody about to run over, I remember not long ago, my daughter, we live right next street, and my daughter actually turned around and started running off into the street. Why? Why? You know, you know the rules. We talked about this. And she just turns and runs in the street. Now, granted, in that moment where I see her turn and run to the street, did I run to the edge? And before running into the street, did I run to the edge and like look both ways? No. It's my daughter in the middle of a street. I mean, with complete and total reckless abandon. I run over and I scoop her up and I'm like, get off the street. Why? It's already a conviction in my mind. I would die for my family. I'd die for the people that I love. It's predetermined in my heart and in my mind. And the second thing is, is that I would die for something of eternal magnitude. Not something temporary, but something eternal. I would die for something of eternal magnitude, something I have a core conviction of. Philippians 121 says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do we gain? Oh, you could, oh, eternal magnitude. With face to face with the Father at the feet of Jesus. Those are my two. What are your two? I think it's hard for us to know what we would truly live for if we cannot define what is worthy for us to die for. Think about that. There's a quote that I want you to write down. You don't have to, but I encourage you to. There's, there's an extra amount of grace that for people that take notes. I don't know. I'm just playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. But to help you remember this, I think this is good for your life. The length of our life does not determine the impact of our legacy. The length of our life does not determine the impact of our legacy. Uh, do you think that you're promised to live to 100? Any of us? No. Are we promised tomorrow? No. Actually, we're not. Uh, none of us never really know the time in which we're going to go to be with uh, the Lord or not. But what I love about Stephen is he may not have had a long life, but he had an impactful life. He left a legacy, so much so that here we are 2,000 years later talking about the manager of the food distribution to the widows and the poor. It's, his legacy lived on. So much so that we, we're, we're trying to evaluate the meaning and the purpose of our life around how he lived his. Uh, I want to share with you uh, this last four or five days, is, uh, from being honest, the last month has been brutal for me. Uh, four days ago, my father in love, man that I love with all of my heart, he went to be with the Lord. 
And I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm getting on a plane and I'm gonna head back home and I'm gonna be with my family and we're gonna celebrate his life. Um, but it's been, it's been hard, real hard. And uh, uh, I'm honestly not gonna stand up here and say that I like God's plan for this situation. It's, it's, it's sucked. It's been hard. But I can stand up here and tell you that I trust him, that I have hope. You know, I'm not up here crying. Why? Because I don't, I don't grieve like other people grieve. As followers of Jesus, we don't grieve like other people grieve. Why? Because I know that he's much better off than he was four days ago. He's at home with the Father. He's with, he's with Jesus right now. His body withering away, turning to dust. But that's fine. He's going to come back for it. He's going to be with Jesus right now. I'm going to celebrate that. You know, as I think about his life, and I, and I, and I just want to give honor for just a second to a man that has made a huge impact in my life and has meant a lot to me. And I mean, let's be honest, without him, you know, I wouldn't be here because my wife and all this, you know. I love, I love him. But when I think about his story, I think about he was a man that loved his family and friends with everything that he had. He was a man that committed 38 years of nonstop, consistent, faithful ministry in the same city. I'm talking about weekly hospital visits. He's probably performed over three, 400 funerals. Who knows? Married half the city. Committed his life to faithful service. 38 years of faithful service. And I can say, in all the honesty and integrity that I have, that he was a man that gave his life for the cause of Christ. Full of the Spirit, full of faith, full of wisdom, full of power. What a legacy. That's what I say about him. What will people say about you? I think about the legacy that he leaves. That we have the picture of my... This is him just a um, couple months before he passed away uh, on the couch listening to worship music. He feels terrible right now. He's dying, and he's lifting his hands in praise. He kept saying, your praise will ever be on my lips. Some of his final words on this earth was, praise the Lord and worshiping Jesus. Look at this, look at this the next picture. This is the legacy that he leaves behind. You see his son is two daughters and his, and his wife. The length of your life does not determine the impact of your legacy. You see, although he didn't make it to old age, he leaves a legacy that's going to change the world. And these four people, by the way he lived and the way he died. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? What were people going to say about you? I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to consider a question tonight. Just, just take, take a minute to, to inhale, to exhale. To consider your life. What's the most important thing that you could prioritize in your life?
what would you be willing to die for? Uh, I believe, <laughs> I'm 100% confident if Craig could come back today, come back from heaven, which he wouldn't want to, he would tell every single one of you that the most important decision that you could make would be to follow Jesus, to receive the gift of grace. The beautiful thing about grace is that you don't have to earn it. You only have to receive it. We so bad want to earn the right towards eternity with the Father, earn our faith. But the Christian life isn't like that. Scripture says that for by grace, God's unmerited love and favor over your life, you are saved through faith. This is absolutely nothing that you could possibly do. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you came, that you died, and that you rose again. And with all of the faith that I know how, I give it to you. I surrender my life to you. I choose this day to follow you. And if you said that prayer, and if you make that decision today, guess what? You're in the family of God. You're like, but surely it can't be that easy. I said the same thing. But that's the mystery of the gift of grace. That once and for all, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that we could live free from guilt, free from shame, and that we could have hope for eternity. And scripture says in John 10, life abundantly. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more, or if you'd like to join us on a Sunday, head on over to pinewoodboulder.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. And if you'd like to be notified every time we post new content, then subscribe. And remember, just keep coming back.